So I would like to start today with uh, an acknowledgement that uh, just by us inviting this topic of death and dying uh, into this weekend, uh, <clears throat> that that itself is, uh, is so precious. Yesterday we heard a few stories from other people and it's obvious by opening to death and dying uh, that death and dying has a potential for wisdom, for wisdom and has a potential to reconnect us to what is really important. So by inviting death and dying into this room together, which uh, in our culture is really, really avoided, it's something not to talk about, something not to look at. So I think the main question which uh, comes with inviting death and dying as a topic to explore and to be with is, okay, death is certain and time of death is uncertain, how, I, how, I want, how do I want to live? And that question points to a kind of general compass, how, how do I want to live? What is my life for? But also, knowing that death is certain and the time of death is uncertain, how do I want to live today? How do I want to be here in this moment, which is all I have, which is all I can be sure of this moment? How do I want to be here? One challenge I have with more traditional Tibetan Buddhist teachings, like from the book, The Foundation of Buddhist Practice, that the tendency often in these texts is um, <clears throat> that they seem to tell us how it is. And there's too much, too much shoulds and must in it. If we take it too literal, if we take it too serious, and if we forget that these are myths. And of course, myths are important, and it's worth to have your own myth. around life and death, but it has to be yours. So no matter what I've said yesterday and 
what I might say today. I think the most important direction to go is to trust your intuition, to trust your own heart. There are no rules. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody can tell you what to do and what's the right thing to do. Only your heart can. And if we have a kind of fundamentalistic map, which, I mean, it's understandable that we are seeking a map and that we want a map. There is a certain kind of relief to know about the eight stages of death and how to prepare for death and what practices to do. There's a certain relief. But it misses uh, the possibility of your heart to meet the unknown and to be with the unknown. So the eights of this and the tens of this and the shoulds, if they are taken lightly as a, as a map, they might be supportive, but they also might close that door to your own wisdom, to your own, to your own heart, to your own intuition. So one of the one of the ways we can open that door to our intuition is to stay close and do nothing. So to stay close here means a few things, but one of them is compassion. To stay close is compassion. And after our first meditation, I I want to talk and reflect upon how the topic death and dying and old age and sickness is connected with compassion. Stay close also means that we learn to modulate our attention. That we So modulate our attention, that is what you do in meditation. That we have a certain possibility to stay aware of what is important. To stabilize our attention in the present moment. And that is what our practice can give us as a resource 
to be aware what we are aware of and to be aware of how are we aware how do we pay attention to what are we paying attention and how do we pay attention so the doing nothing is exactly that gap, that moment, which makes it possible that we connect with our heart, with our intuition. So the doing nothing maybe could be, it could be added to the doing nothing is to listen and then respond. But to respond not from our reactivity, but for something which is deeper than that. So doing nothing here means also that we cultivate an emotional stability, that we cultivate or discover, we already have that capacity, to discover that we can witness, that we can witness what is happening in our own life and what is happening on this planet without being wiped out. So witnessing here doesn't mean a detached witnessing. capacity of witnessing, which is in the same time a loving container. And which starts to see how things exist. Witnessing so that our perceptual filters, which comes from our reactivity, becomes more transparent and we connect and are more present to what really is. That we meet this moment and what is happening in this moment, the relationships we have in this moment, the people who are present, without a distortion, a distortion which comes from the perceptual filters of our reactivity, which then makes us react and not respond. And that is something we explore in meditation, this capacity starting with what is here, starting with ourselves. The most fundamental and important Buddhist practice is to be aware. To be here.
in a place of groundedness, in a place of connectedness. in a place of safety. And I talked about yesterday the three gems, the three jewels. So the these words, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, which have so much room for filling it with meaning for you, felt meaning. And again, dropping all the shoulds and dropping all this is how, how it is. But what does it mean for you? One of the factors I mentioned here Mudras is the posture. And here the posture not only in, in our formal meditation practice, but to discover the felt sense of the meditation posture and then bring that into our life. a vulnerability in the front, a softness in the front, a strength in the back, a sense of I have the right to be here, this is my space, the groundedness, So one way of uh, one way to create a moment of doing nothing in a emotionally charged situation is to come back to your body, to come back to your feet, to assume your posture right there. And of course, that doesn't mean that you could go down and sit in the meditation posture. I mean here the meditation posture as a symbol, the qualities of the meditation posture. You can assume and connect with these qualities in walking, in sitting, in lying down. In movement, right there at the doctor's table right there in the hospital room, right there when you witness your own turmoil or the turmoil of another person, right there when you witness your own suffering or you witness the suffering of another person, you take your seat. So the meditation posture is not a kind of a side thing. It is. A, it can become a way of living. You can develop a confidence that you never leave the seat as a practitioner. 
when you fail and when you don't live up to how you want to respond, that doesn't mean that you left the seat as a practitioner. What's your relationship to failing, to making mistakes, to slipping? What's your relationship with not living up to an idealized idea of yourself? Or when you notice that you can't fulfill the shoulds and musts of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. That is important. How do you sit there in your own failing? How, how do you sit there when you meet aspects of yourself you are ashamed of, you feel guilty of? Experiencing shame, resistance, overwhelm, that's not the problem. That's human. But how do you sit in the midst of it? for all of us, not only for yourself. The other resource I mentioned is uh, friendship. <clears throat> that we are doing this together, right now we are doing it together. Right now it is happening. Right now we are pointing to the elephant in in the room of humanity, the elephant of death and dying and impermanence and loss and things ending. Right now we're pointing to the experience of not knowing that we don't have a clue. And we're doing it together. That's why it's possible to do it. We're witnessing together. Friendship is really one of the things in our lives which are worth to live for. And we all know that. And no matter how unspeakable, difficult things are who are happening in our life and around us, there's always kindness as well. There's always friendship. And here friendship, not just, you know, kind of the intimate friendship with someone you, you, you know for, for a long time, like special friendship, but a kinship between us, between everyone. Then the last resource here I want to mention, which opens in our meditation, is what is uh, expressed in the, in the Buddhist refuge as, as Buddha. And uh, here in this room we can connect with the symbols of awake awareness. So meditation gives us the opportunity to explore our relationship to that which is 
unstable and changing and flowing and which is not reliable. We can explore how we relate to ending, to loss. We can explore how much we refuse to accept what is, what is happening, with dreams of a better future or with longings to go back as it was before. Some people might long for the time before Corona. It's not going to happen. In front of us is a time of destabilization where that fact of that structures which support us and has have supported us for many years, the climate collapsing. Nothing is reliable and there's no way back. So that's what we explore, our relationship to the fact of impermanence, of endings. And uh, Buddha, the awake awareness, is the place of rest. And it is also available. So in the midst of this unreliable, conditioned experience, where there is no home, where there is no safety, there is no safety net. Seeing that and accepting that and giving space to that gives us the opportunity to connect with that which is reliable, that which is always present, the source of your witnessing, the source of your of your love, that is reliable, it is undestructible, it survives concentration camps, it survives tragedies. It is present in families witness together the death of their loved ones. It's also there. Within the destabilization of our times now, we can talk a lot about, and it's important to really look at what is happening and opening to that, not denying, not creating a cocoon of safety and security. And at the same time, we can celebrate the many, many beautiful responses which also arise now in humanity. So many people who found that
serving others is not an obligation. It's not something we should. But serving others is the most empowering and meaningful, meaning-giving, beautiful expression, which is making us more resilient, which strengthens our immune system, which makes us more healthy and happy. Happy you're not in the the kind of quiet happiness of knowing that we live a meaningful life. So more, more we can rest in that which is also true, essence love. The more we can be an instrument of that, allow it to flow from us, not in the sense that we need to develop it, but in the sense that it is already in emerging in us. So without making it a ritual, in our first meditation, I want to invite us to take refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha, in the Three Jewels, which is, in the end, taking refuge into yourself, into the wisdom and love which is already here, and to rest there. Just listening. And initially doing nothing. And then out of that doing nothing, while resting in that which is most important, you will know. A knowing will arise. How to respond. And very often, that knowing, that respond, means I need to take care of this being first. I'm tired. I need to, I need to learn to say no. I need to put the oxygen mask on the safety card in the airport, I need to take the oxygen masks first onto this being. And then I have resources and capacity to take care of my neighbor. So let's sit quietly with your responses what I said, and um, yeah, starting with just
taking your time to feel into the posture. And not disrupting what is happening now in your thoughts and feelings and what is happening in this group now, which we all feel. It's part of our experience. But uh, just going with it. Giving space to your inner life, to your own energies as they are. And modulating your attention here means to allow the shift to happen from the head into the body. Following the breath even deeper into the body. Opening all senses. And gravitating with your attention towards present moment awareness. One of the wisdoms in impermanence, the non-static nature of this moment, is it is precious. Aliveness is precious. Mysterious. And witnessing that aliveness, which is happening right now, is fulfilling in itself. Sounds and sensations, feelings, and witnessing awareness nothing extraordinary needs to happen because this moment is as it is extraordinary even if it doesn't feel as good as you would want to wish. So modulating your attention also means that you stay, that you return 
to the breath, to your hands. the present moment. And remembering impermanence and death is a friend which enhances the lifeness of this moment, the wonder of this moment. when you make this gesture of welcoming, relaxing and opening to what is, something opens up. something you can't describe, something you can't hold on to. And then you rest in the witnessing. in the looking, in the hearing. And you modulate your attention towards present moment awareness, to the sense gates, sensations of touch, and sensations, physical sensations, emotional sensations, sounds. felt sense of this room and the group. If you stabilize your attention in the present moment, 
something opens up. I'm not talking about concentration here. A light resting. In the present moment, but the sounds, the sensations, the breath. It is an experience of being able to be here. because there is something bigger than you. Something we share. Trusting your intuition. softening into the container of Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. Would like to give you an example. It's it's a it's a simple example on how um, teachings uh, from the Tibetan tradition around uh, supporting uh, someone dying or someone who has already died um, can can create confusion and disconnect us from 
from the situation and disconnect us from our heart. And you might read uh, in, uh, in traditional teachings around uh, death, dying, and also shortly after a person has died, that it is being said, you're not supposed to touch that person. So that teaching comes from the acknowledgement that um, according to, I call it now myth, what's happening in the death process is that uh, so the death process is not finished after the breath is finished. So there's a period which can last hours, some, in some cases even days before the subtle level of consciousness leaves, leaves the body. And it is said that the future rebirth is uh, impacted by where, in which part of the body, the consciousness leaves. So ideally, it would leave at the crown. So that would be the, the ideal. So it then would be interpreted or expressed as you know, being born in higher realms. Yeah. So imagine someone reading this. You know, the good Tibetan Western Buddhist practitioner uh, taking that myth, that story, as literally true. What kind of struggle can appear in that person? A fear of touch, and then when there is touch by a nurse or something, it becomes this catastrophe. Fear arises. Insecurity. You feel like holding the hand of your dead father, but you don't do it, because you're not supposed to touch shortly after death, because you might, if you touch the feet, you might be the cause for him to be reborn in lower realms. So this is just an example, and it, it's probably most people here would think that that's, that, that has, doesn't have any meaning. But uh, you know, if you are a serious goody-goody uh, Buddhist, Buddhist practitioner girl, it becomes a problem. And that's exactly that kind of teachings then which con disconnects you from, from, from the appropriate response to that situation. And it's different in each situation. And you can't rely upon someone else telling what to do because every situation is different and it's out of control. You know, because you know, it's so quick. You know, people, like in my father's case, they just stormed in like a big attack. <laughs> and, you know, that was one of the kind of when I, now I'm kind of, I'm so happy that I somehow I had that stamina to, to I mean, of course, I like to uh, talk about the, uh, the successful gestures, yeah, but that is, so I'm I, definitely I fail much more uh, than I, 
and I have uh, moments like that. But that was a moment where, where I, where I was connected with my heart, and and I acted from that. So, but let's say I I wouldn't be able to do that because it's. I mean, it's, it's such an unknown territory to be in that place. And, uh, and uh, we are so much overwhelmed by the, the mechanism of the medical industry and the pharmaceutical industry, the inhumane medical industry. So, wouldn't it be understandable, I mean, if we now look at Stefan Pende five, six years ago, if he, would, if he wouldn't be able to stand up. Yeah, so, so, and then they would have touched my father and you know, not only touched, I mean, it's like a violent attack. So now, if I would have then, in, in that case, if I wouldn't have stand up. So first, of course, if I look now back to that Stefan Pender, I mean, the only response to that is compassion to the whole situation, softness to him. That he had a moment where he lost the connection with his heart and got afraid and didn't, didn't know how to respond, froze. Yeah. And then it's just what the whole thing would have developed in, the, in a completely different directions. So if I look now back and I would have fail, failed, if I would have responded differently, I wouldn't, I wouldn't judge Stefan Pender, seven years ago. And because I have been in the other situation, because I, I worked as a paramedical, so I have been in the other situation. So it's not that I, when I say the inhumane medical industry, I'm not judging the people working there. So this is an outrage towards the system and not the people who work there. Because I understand the situation. You know, I worked six years in a closed ward in, uh, in a psychiatric system. I was part of the system. And I knew, I, I know how it is to be part of that. Yeah. So if I then would uh, look back to that situation in that hospital room, There's just, yeah, compassion. Compassion is a word which I not so often use, but the mystery of compassion. Understanding that everyone involved there in that moment, me, and also the hospital staff, they just tried their best.
So, so you know, the touching. I, I, I uh, last week I, um, I read uh, one of the many books um, uh, written by Buddhist practitioners and hospice helpers around uh, um, dying and death. And in this book, the the person described this beautiful scene of uh, a parent, uh, parents whose son just had died, seven-year-old son from cancer, and they washed him. So if that that hospice helper who facilitated that and was a support and encouraged the par- parents, which is unspeakable, uh, this situation, encouraged them to continue, even if 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 was so, uh, and he described it so beautifully and so intimately. And he was in connection with his heart at the moment, and he was not blocked by some Tibetan Buddhist teachings that you shouldn't touch uh, uh, someone who has just died, yeah. Because in that situation, it was the appropriate thing to to allow to give space to and to witness. Where, where does this myth comes from? Do you know where it? Uh, so in in that example, and I mean this is just a tiny detail, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's it's I just use it as an example. Uh, so that uh, so that uh, teaching makes sense if you have a fully accomplished meditator mm-hmm. who is able to meditate, mm-hmm. uh, do the what is called the tuktam meditation. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So after the after the uh, what we call death, not seizing of the breath, uh, an accomplished meditator is able to rest in unconditioned awareness and pure awareness. So that's this, you know, mystery they they try to investigate it now with uh, with uh, um, scientific. You know, there's some some teams in India waiting for accomplished meditators uh, to die, uh, so that they can go in there with the instrument and me- measure if there's some brain activity still somehow. Or why the heck do they not decompose? Why don't they go to the uh, kind of normal stage of you know the stiffness after death and then the loosening again and the smell and so why is that not happening? So so that is a teaching coming from there because if you then would disturb that uh, uh, meditative state of tuktam by moving the body, that would uh, maybe have. Uh, maybe would create a challenge for the meditator. Yeah. But to put all these things on, uh, to measure, it is, it's, it's yeah, also, so it proves yeah. that it, yeah. maybe yeah. it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. He, is so, he is meditating yeah. anyway. Yeah. yeah, so, and I mean, it's questionable mm-hmm. if a meditation uh, like this needs a body. Mm-hmm. Where is that meditation happening? And uh, what they found so far is not happening in the brain because there's no brain activities. Yeah. So it's yeah. And how how is it really? 
Nobody knows. Mm. But uh, uh, some people pretend too much that they know. Mm. And because we don't know, then we trust them. And instead of trusting our heart. There is no blueprint for this situation. And it will be different, for sure, one thing for sure, it will be different than we can ever imagine. So we can, you know, imagine how we, how we want to die and what we need and how we would like to be, but it's unknown. Another uh, story I read recently uh, was this uh, a story, uh, I mean, a real, uh, a, a real, uh, a real story, and that was, uh, you know, in some hospitals they have these priests, like, you know, so I don't know, how, do you have that in Sweden? That, mm. In yeah, some hospitals, yeah. so like spiritual advisor or something like that. So, and in that hospital, uh, it happened that one of them was a Buddhist practitioner. So, and usually, of course, he what was called uh, when someone was dying in that hospital who had a Buddhist background or a Buddhist practice. But in this, in that case, he was called, and because there was nobody else available, he was called, and he entered that room, and it was a big Jewish family. And he came there with Amitabha thoughts and Omani Pemahum. He had a stupa in his bag. And, yeah, so. <laughs> and maybe we can imagine ourselves like that, you know? Like uh, entering uh, that room with our weapons. Yeah? Like with, yeah, so we know what's the right thing to do, you know? Put a, a pill under the tongue, you know? Uh, like there's this Tibetan pills you might get from a lama, uh, put a stupa on top of the <laughs> of the head uh, to facilitate the the leaving of the consciousness from the crown. Uh, you know, put some Omani um, Hung songs on on the CD. Yeah? So that, that's kind of the weapons. And of course, it's obvious we can feel how that that kind of uh, knowing and so I know what to do here disconnects us from the situation. So in that in that case, so he he enters this room, Jewish family, like twenty people in the room. <laughs> the person has just, had just died, and they all are looking at him. Yeah. And then he beautifully describes his. Um, kind of a struggle uh, uh, and luckily he had a Jewish background so he grew up in a Jewish fa family so he, he was familiar with some of the prayers they say or words or you know so but there was the struggle in him wouldn't that be lying what's the question is that is that true speech am I authentic when I do this, uh, because you know he has been also kind of used and has become familiar with 
the Buddhist framework with the, with the knowing what to do and with the Buddhist rituals. And then it's so beautiful how he describes he described when he let he let that go and he just opened to the situation and to what is needed in that situation. And uh, so he did a kind of Buddhist-informed structure ritual, but closed it into Jewish expressions and words and prayers. I remember when my mother died, uh, I came from home and my, uh, we have four children. They were in the room and I had to go home, take a shower. And when I drove back again, my sister called me, hurry up. So I had to jump over the balcony into the room quietly and go to her bed. And we all stand there and she took her maybe two more breaths and then um, what to do. I was the one who was Buddhist who started to, to recite Gud som var barn och kär. Because mother did this every evening. Because I, and my sister is like uh, in the church, the diakon. And it didn't, it felt so like familiar. Mm. Um, so she should feel um, safe and at home. Mm. And it was so it was so nice. Mm. Couldn't it be a gift for the family to just let them do what they want with me? <laughs> so they are happy. Mm. They are the ones to survive. Yes. At, uh, afterwards. And uh, if I have some wish, uh, they can always uh, tell the monks they can pray for me. Mm. And that's mm. it. It's, it yeah, sure. Make it easier. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yes. If they are not Buddhist, they don't know what uh, all this stuff, and they get unhappy mm. to mm. think about it. Mm. Yeah. So let's have a break. Mm.